Hello and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services partner for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that help power their emerging markets business strategies. My name is Richard Leggett and I'm the CEO of FSG. Today's podcast is part of our Emerging Market Executive Spotlight series. I'm honored to be joined today by Terry Thiel, Director of Sustainable Product Strategies for Lubrizol Corporation, a global specialty chemical company which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Last year, Lubrizol reported over $6 billion in revenue. And for those of you that don't know Lubrizol by name, you've probably used the company's products today, either in your cleaning products, shampoos, your cars, or in your medicine. The focus of today's discussion is disruptive innovation. As a reminder, this podcast and all of FSG's content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. Terry, thank you for joining us today, and welcome. Thanks, Richard. I'm uh, really excited about the conversation we're going to have. I am, too. I'm super excited about the discussion topic. Uh, however, before we start talking about disruptive innovation, I did want to spend a minute or two on your background. One of the great benefits of my job is that I get to spend significant time with our client executives and learn about their professional journeys. And I thought yours was very unique in that you've spent time in the military, you've worked as a lawyer in national security roles, and then made the transition to business. I thought it'd be interesting for our listeners if you could kind of quickly walk us through that journey. Well, very briefly, Richard, uh, I think it's a case of you... uh when you set out on your career, you plan and you think long and hard about the decisions you make, and they never turn out the way you think they're going to. When I first started working for the government in national security, I was extremely satisfied with the work, and I reasoned that there would always be a Cold War, never anticipating that in 1989 we would actually win. And so uh, I tell people it's a natural uh, career progression for me uh, for having gone from fighting the Cold War to working for a refrigerator manufacturer. (laughs) Uh, During my time in national security, I I was uh, honored to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Treasury Department, and lastly, the Executive Office of the President. That's really, really fascinating. We're going to come back to how that might have influenced some of your thinking in your current role in a little bit. But let's jump right into our topic of disruptive innovation. We hear this term being used more and more these days. And, and I guess let's start with just a definitional question. In your mind, uh, what constitutes disruptive innovation? I, I guess I'd put several different subsets to it. And this isn't uh, my thinking, it's, it's Christensen's. It's uh, evolutionary change, it's revolutionary change, and it's disruptive change. And uh, evolutionary is what I would characterize as uh, mountain climbing. It's step-by-step, step, it's incremental. And uh, that's most of what businesses do when you're, when you're uh, redesigning a refrigerator for an energy efficiency standard and you uh, put in a new gasket, uh, uh, you're making incremental efficiency improvements. If, on the other hand, you're looking at dishwashers and you're going from a uh, top loader to a front loader, uh, that's a fundamental change in your manufacturing. Uh, it's an entirely different product, and uh, it's what I'd characterize as chasm leaping. It's uh, disruptive change, not evolutionary change. And then finally, there is the uh, 
uh, scenario where I'm I'm no longer selling uh, clothes washers at all, but I'm selling uh, clothes cleaning as a service, uh, where I've redefined the business model in its entirety. Uh, we look at all three. Evolutionary can be momentous uh, as as well, even if it is incremental. Uh, but that's what I would tend to put into the categories. You uh, you teach a college course as a visiting professor and you ask your students there to identify and examine disruptive innovation trends. What are some of the four to five top trends you're currently tracking and that the students have been tracking for you, uh, so on an academic basis, but also uh, at Lubrizol? Well, we use students in two ways in the area. First, we use graduate interns uh, from a local college. Case Western Reserve University has a uh, Master's of Engineering Management program where they take uh, undergraduates, uh, chemis, mechies, uh, biomeds, and then they give them a uh, graduate-level introduction to business. Uh, we use these student interns in-house, get them two days a week, and I have one of those interns who is basically managing our disruptive innovation portfolio. We must have, I'd say, two dozen different topics in that portfolio, uh, that we have force-ranked in terms of potential impact, uh, severity of it, and uh, the um, timing of it, uh, whether it will be in the near term or the far term. Then depending upon the topics that rise to the uh, top of that stack, uh, we then take them to a uh, undergraduate business class at Baldwin-Wallace University here in, in uh, the Cleveland area. And what that student team does is, rather than monitoring, uh, we have them do a deep dive uh, on a given topic. This is the second year we've done it. Uh, last year we uh, worked on the Internet of, or I should say, 3D printing. And this year we're working on the Internet of Things. Uh, what they do during the class is during the fall s semester, they first of all learn about the topic and do some deep research on it. And then in the second half of the fall, we do scenario planning uh, rather than forecasting. Then in the spring term, uh, we introduce the students to Lubrizol, and then the second half of the spring, the students evaluate what those disruptive topics might mean, how they might impact Lubrizol, and we have the class then present that out to our senior management. And then what happens from there uh, with these trends within Lubrizol? Do you then take them and institutionalize a process for monitoring and adopting or evaluating? Well, again, if uh, most of the uh, topics on the list we monitor because they haven't risen to the level that we feel we need to take uh, active uh, measures with regard to them yet. Some of them, however, when they do pop up, uh, we will take a more focused approach uh, depending upon whether... And, and we're, when you talk about disruptive, you're really talking about change, not necessarily... Uh, bad or good, but drastic change. And depending upon how you respond to it, it can be a good thing or a bad thing. So in the area of 3D printing, for example, in our advanced materials group, we are actively looking at how we can produce materials that can be used with the various 3D printing technologies as a potential new market, uh, a potential opportunity. 
on the additive side, which is more focused on the transportation sector, the concern there is more about when auto manufacturers start manufacturing parts through 3D printing and whether that will in any way influence the performance specifications of our lubricants that would be coming in contact with those parts. Uh, in, in that case, it's more aggressive monitoring in terms of paying attention to what the OEMs are doing and being hopefully one step ahead of the game when that technology finally emerges. So it, it, it's really going to depend upon that business segment uh, and how the, uh, the innovation hits it. Interesting. And, and I wanted to spend a little time on uh, each of the, the two topics you mentioned, 3D printing and the Internet of Things. I'll start with 3D printing. You've alluded to this a little bit already, but it has gotten a lot of press uh, over the last uh, year, year and a half or so, and some of it very positive, and obviously there's some of it that is negative in terms of some of the implications of 3D printing. But most of the mainstream attention and press has been really related to the impact to individuals, you know, the ability for an individual to print things uh, themselves to spec. And I'm curious how you see this evolving in terms of uh, the industrial opportunity um, versus the the more consumer-based opportunity. Obviously, the consumer opportunity presents something of an opportunity for you guys, but also the the, the bigger opportunity could be industrial. And I'm just curious uh, if you see that uh, evolving uh, as, a, as something that uh, could happen near term uh, or if that's something that's a little more aspirational and further out. Well, let me. Let, what I'll do is is quickly summarize the scenarios that we produced, uh, rather than trying to forecast it for you. Uh, the the scenario planning process uh, um, obviously dates back well beyond. Uh, it's it's got military roots, uh, but I think the the foremost example in the business community is probably uh, Royal Dutch Shell at the time of the energy crisis in the early 70s, which had previously done scenario planning and was better prepared because they had thought through the implications of what might happen should a cartel emerge. What we did in that classic Royal Dutch Shell four-blocker scenarios, and what are the major transformational themes, the critical uncertainties that are going to dictate the future of 3D printing? And the two that we came up with were the cost uh, of of printing a uh, product as opposed to traditional manufacturing, and the performance characteristics or quality of that product versus traditional manufacturing. And if you take them to their extremes, uh, uh, low-cost competitiveness with low-product performance, that scenario uh, we called uh, failure to launch. Uh, it was basically 3D printing is nice for prototyping but really doesn't present much of a threat for mainstream manufacturing. If you took the high cost competitiveness and low product performance scenario, we called that Toy Story. And the penetration of 3D printing would be more in the low end consumer goods, toys type air arena where the performance characteristics of the materials were not as critical but cost competitiveness with traditional manufacturing played out. If you took the reverse scenario where you had low cost competitiveness, bad cost competitiveness, but extremely high performance, 
we call that avatar. This is the case uh, where you see 3D printing having a tremendous impact in, let's say, medicine, uh, uh, where they're printing bones, they're printing jaws, they're printing skulls, they're printing kidneys, you name it. And, uh, and in high-value, complex, sophisticated products where price is not much of an issue. Uh, again, that scenario is one where the end consumer doesn't necessarily realize that GE is printing the turbine blades that goes into the jet engine on the plane they're riding. Then the final scenario is where 3D printing breaks through on both the cost and performance uh, uh, criteria. And that's basically, uh, we call that limitless. It's the third industrial revolution. Uh, and it has the most dramatic impacts uh, for everyone. It basically takes your Hexerolene Samuelson two-sector model of general equilibrium and blows it up. And your Economics 101 book just went out the window. Uh, now, depending upon the scenario, the impacts for Lubrizol varied by the two divisions, and and we informed management accordingly, and are trying to track now what we see to be the signposts that might have some indication as to what are those, which of those scenarios actually plays out. It's fascinating. Uh, I guess when you think about that, and you think about these scenarios playing out, especially the uh, I would say the avatar and probably the limitless scenarios, m most importantly, but even to some extent the Toy Story scenario. How do you see that in terms of the, the threat and or opportunity for emerging markets? Because as we know, many companies have, uh, you know, view emerging markets not only as demand centers, but as, as low-cost production and distribution centers. And obviously, uh, this technology and is incredibly disruptive to traditional manufacturing models. And I'm curious how you see that playing out therefore, for the emerging market uh, opportunity? Yeah, I guess if I were to hazard a guess, when you were looking at uh, lower value uh, products, I think 3D printing winds up substituting, really undercuts uh, globalization of products. Uh, why should I manufacture low-value products in China, dealing with uh, manufacturing taking place in another country, dealing with transportation and all of the other issues that go along with having my manufacturing removed from my consumers. When I can uh, manufacture or produce uh, directly where my consumers are. So I see for low-value material that 3D printing really, if you will, comes home and countries develop their own 3D printing capabilities and manufacturing capabilities for their own markets simply because it makes more sense to manufacture where the consumer is. Now, if you're looking at high-value product that is extremely sophisticated, uh, that may be a different story because you may not necessarily be able to replicate the sophistication of the 3D printing as easily as you can with lower value product. But I could easily en envision 3D printing having an adverse effect on global trade. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I suspect as, as, uh, as technology evolves so rapidly that even you know, moving from the low end uh, to, the, to the more sophisticated end of the spectrum will happen in quicker cycles as, as this technology matures. Yes. And when you, uh, part of the process that we went through was looking at the value chain. It's critical to try and figure out 
who creates value and who's the winner? Is it the designer? Is it the hardware manufacturer? Is it the material provider? Uh, they each play a different role, uh, and and you know we could make the argument that whoever comes up with the design that fits into the software that goes into the hardware uh, is the critical piece. You could make the argument that it's the material um, and its performance characteristics. Um, you know, is this a razor razor blades uh, type value proposition? And and so depending upon the sophistication of the des design and the incredible things that 3D printing can do, um, could be very very disruptive on a lot of traditional value chains. I want to uh, keeping an eye on, on the time. I want to turn to the the second uh, disruptive innovation trend: the Internet of Things. There's been so much talk about big data. That's that's been the buzzword, and and I guess I want to understand again definitionally what is the so-called Internet of Things, or is it just another way of saying big data in your mind? Uh, there are a million definitions floating around out there. The one that we are starting this class with uh, is making the uh, the assumption that big data is really a subset of the Internet of Things. When I when I hear the phrase the Internet of Things. I am I am talking about a scenario where the collection of data uh, is ubiquitous. That uh, just about everything has a sensor somehow or other embedded in it, and that there are sensing devices uh, uh, at a ubiquitous level. And and so there's a there's a spider web, there's a network of, of hardware that has to be uh, introduced uh, for that collection of data. Then when you say big data, it's, well, what do I do with it? And there's a, there's a micro side and there's a macro side. Uh, the micro side is uh, my automobile telling me that I need a new air filter. The macro side is my automobile telling Ford Motor Company that along with 50, 60,000 other vehicles with the same design that there's something that Ford could do to improve the performance of the air filter in its next generation vehicle. So how the data then gets played back, uh, there, there's a myriad different applications. I, I, I When I worked for AB Electrolux years ago, um, and this was in the early 90s, uh, at that time the conversation was about having the uh, wired house where everything in your house talked to everything else in the house. Your alarm clock talked to your toaster, and I don't know what they were talking about, but they had that capacity. Um, and the concept there was you bought a quart of milk, and there would be a stripe on the milk, and when it went into the refrigerator, the refrigerator would scan it and be aware of the fact that there was milk in it and the date that the milk had been put in there and would track the milk's age and the refrigerator might tell you that your milk was stale or the refrigerator theoretically could call the grocery store and order new milk and tell you to throw the old away uh, and then have the new milk delivered without you even knowing it. Um, so how it plays out at the personal level versus the industrial level, there's just a myriad different scenarios. And, and frankly, we haven't gotten deep enough into the class yet to sort through them all. 
uh, I think what we need to do is set aside the 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 micro cases and look at the macro cases because the biggest impact is for us how it impacts business. How does it impact new product design? How does it impact product manufacturing uh, and the supply chain? Yeah, I was going to ask where you thought the biggest impact was going to be if you think about supply chain, design, production process, and then even distribution go to market. Um, yeah. You know, it, it seems like this trend can be incredibly disruptive and create amazing opportunities and or risks across that entire chain. Exactly so. And I, and I think people tend to focus on the micro simply because it's personal and, and understandable. Uh, but the real impact is going to be at the macro level when it comes to optimizing the 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 value cycle in terms of how quickly one can identify um, opportunities for improving the performance uh, of a product based upon the data collected on its uh, from the field, if you will. A number of years ago, we were looking at putting sensors on vehicles. Uh, in a um, open strip mining concept where because of our internal uh, expertise on lubricants, uh, the sensors would be able to track the performance of the lubricant and the data would then be uh, uploaded by satellite and then monitored at a central location that might be on a different continent but would allow you to know how one of these big earth movers that have the 16-foot wheels um, is performing. The last thing you want is a catastrophic failure in one of those earth movers. Uh, so being able to track the lubricant performance, just one example of, of, of how this application might play out. Yeah, it's really fascinating, and it could create, uh, I think, incredible uh, opportunities for, for those who are ahead of, ahead of the curve. I want to just um, wrap up with, a couple of more questions, more more around how you go about uh, your 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 strategic planning process. You alluded to scenario planning. Uh, as you know, we here at FSG are big big fans of of scenario planning, especially uh, in the emerging markets, given the volatility. And many of our clients struggle with strategic planning um, in the emerging market portfolio because. Uh, of of the of the pace of change, the volatility, and by the time you actually finish a traditional strategic planning process, uh, it's it's rendered almost obsolete. And so, I thought you have a very interesting approach, and I thought maybe you could kind of give us the the high points of that approach, and then while you're doing that, maybe also talk about how you would you would recommend companies uh, try to incorporate analyzing disruptive innovation either as part of this process or as a as a standalone process that runs parallel. Well, certainly disruptive innovation, I think, is one of the feeders into strategic planning. Uh, you you have to factor that in. But when you say strategic planning, uh, you know, I think we the, the words strategic and tactical are so badly overused, and and their meaning gets to be uh, really diluted. Um, strategic planning, I think, can take place at several different levels. It may be that you have a particular problem. Uh, a particular uh, competitive issue or crisis in a given market that is relatively finite and you can come up with a relatively discrete strategic question that you have to answer over the next five years that you then need to plan to. Uh, at the other extreme, strategic planning is what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, it's it's the larger question of 
where the business, where you want your business as a whole to be and what you want it to do. And the dynamics there are, are very different. I guess for me, the critical issue in any strategic planning is business culture and and having the right people in the room. Uh, it's been my experience that there are two types of people in business. There are the people who are extremely adept on a daily basis uh, at beating off the alligators uh, and, and crisis management and, and keeping the trains running on time. And, and these people generally, because they are so successful at that, tend to be promoted into manager positions. Uh, the analogy for me with lawyers is litigators, uh, crisis managers. Uh, the, the best crisis manager seems to always wind up being the general counsel. But at the other extreme, you have people who are the thinking about draining the swamp. Uh, and the swamp drainers are the ones that are really owning the strategic issue. And the frustration and challenge, I think, for a lot of businesses, not unique to where I am now, um, but to other places where I've worked, is getting alligator fighters to think about draining the swamp. Uh, and it's a real culture issue. Uh, now, for what one approach to strategic planning is, is once we get that strategic question uh, articulated, then going through the same sort of process that you would do in scenario planning, which is the critical uncertainties that are going to drive that strategic question into the future. And you may come up with more than two. You may come up with three or four or five. Uh, with a lubricant for a vehicle, one of them might be fuel economy. The other might be uh, environmental disposability. Uh, another might be uh, uh, performance with regard to uh, new uh, engine technology. Wh but whatever those critical uncertainties are that your your planning team identifies as being critical to the future of that, what we try to do is then run a strategy hypothetical. We used to call them scenarios, but it gets confusing, uh, the use of the terminology. So a strategy hypothetical where we'll, we'll build a strategy hypothetical that is focused solely on one of those issues. We will maximize that one issue to the exclusion of everything else. And then we'll build a series of strategy hypotheticals for each of the critical uncertainties that we'd identified. And we may wind up with four or five, maybe even six different strategy hypotheticals. Then we quickly walk through a process, which is more art than science, but we'll find in all of these strategy hypotheticals that address the strategic question, what are the operational objectives that you would have to address? What am I going to have to do about my suppliers? What am I going to have to do about my competitors? and come up with a list of operational objectives that are consistent across all of those hypotheticals. And that way we can ask about those operational objectives and get a comparison going of the different hypotheticals where we're looking at apples to apples. Then we simply go through a SWOT type analysis. It's really an OTSWA. You really need to look at opportunities and threats first because they're outside the gate. And then you look at your strengths and weaknesses, which are inside the gate, your ability to address those opportunities and threats. And we ask ourselves, in each of these hypotheticals, how would we be able to address those operational objectives given our strengths and weaknesses? Once you've then gone through that whole exercise for each of those hypotheticals, you then throw them all away. Why do you do that? It's because you've just gone through a structured argument with your team about what's really important about your strategy. 
you've looked at the critical uncertainties from the bottom and the top and the sides, and everybody in the room now has a working understanding of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats around those critical factors. You hand everybody a sheet of butcher paper, and you tell each of them to write a strategy, and it's quite interesting how close the shot pattern then comes out because everybody has gone through a common learning process, uh, and the strategy almost uh, emerges on its own. Is that process one that you do over an intense several days, or is that one that drags out over uh, several? The the pre-work may take weeks to a couple months to make sure that we have all of the necessary information on on the issue going into the room. And that's sort of a staff prep thing. The actual planning session, six to eight people, uh, we usually uh, run three days, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we break it out that way simply because I remember with certain unnamed corporations going into a multi multi-day planning session and by the third day of three days in a row you would sign anything you would do anything to get out of that room uh you just didn't care anymore you're you know you'd lost the will to live uh (laughs) but if you break it up and you give them a day off in between not only does it give them a chance to stay up with their day job but it also gives them opportunity to reflect on what had happened um, I think the best thinking actually on these strategy sessions is at 5.30 when everybody's done and you're sitting around with a beer talking about what had happened that day. Uh, so splitting it out Monday, Wednesday, Fridays is the way we tend to run them. The biggest challenge for us is Friday afternoon. After you've gotten the strategy written, you need to do the action plan. And that's the hard part because the energy level is low. But if you don't have an action plan, you just wasted the preceding three days. That's when you have two beers, I guess. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I and I think six to eight is the optimal number. And and my uh, undocumented assumption is that six to eight people was the optimal size for bringing down a woolly mammoth. Uh, I, I I really think we're hardwired for that size group. You get much bigger and you lose people. They don't participate. And you get much smaller and you have one or two people dominate. That's fascinating. No, I, I, I think we would agree as well. Um, Terry, I, I'm watching the time. We're, we're, I, know, I know you've got to run to another commitment. Um, so I wanted to uh, just thank you for the time and, and the insights. I think this is a fascinating topic, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure spending time with you as always. And uh, I look forward to continuing the discussion and maybe having a, a follow-up uh, when, when you've done a little more work also on the Internet of Things to, uh, to see uh, your, further, your further thoughts and, and conclusions on that. I appreciate it. It was fun. As a reminder, you can access all of FSG's content on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging market portfolio.